Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because they anchor us in something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. The scripture reading today is from Matthew 17, 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. So my name is Dan Cook. For those of you who don't know me, and it is truly a blessing and a privilege and an honor every time I get to speak in front of you. And it's something I take very seriously and, and thoroughly enjoy. So I'm happy to be here with you today. As, uh, as Sarah mentioned, it's Transfiguration Sunday. Happy Transfiguration Sunday, everybody. I'm sure you've all been wishing each other that, right? How many people actually knew it was Transfiguration Sunday walking in the door? Okay, yeah. I set the number at about seven, and it's the under. So if you had that in recreational gaming, was legal in Minnesota, there you go. Um, we follow here at Genesis what's called the, the uh, Revised Common Lectionary, which is a three-year series of passages that follow what we say is the rhythms of the church calendar. So for those of you who are relatively new or haven't taken a Genesis Essentials class, and it, Steve talks a lot about it in those classes. But the church calendar simply starts with Advent, and moves into Christmas tide, which is more than just Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It's a 12-day period. And then into the season of Epiphany, which is where we've been for the last six weeks. After Epiphany comes Lent. After Lent is Easter tide, again, longer than just that four-day period. And then eventually we get into ordinary time. So it's a very interesting spot that Transfiguration Sunday lands in. It's this pivot point between Epiphany and Lent between a season of abundant knowledge about Jesus and between a season of scarcity. And that's what makes this text so interesting and brings a lesson for not only the apostles involved, but for us as well, I want to say. So if you join me in a quick prayer, we'll dive into God's word together. May these words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, So why is Transfiguration Sunday where it is, is the question, okay? And what I want to suggest is as I talk about that season of 
of abundance during Epiphany and the season of scarcity during Lent, that what you learn during that season of abundance, especially culminating on Transfiguration Sunday, are the things you need to understand about your relationship with God such that when you hit a season of scarcity, and we all hit seasons of scarcity sooner or later, you have what you need to get through that season of scarcity. So we're going from this season of abundance and epiphany, learning about Jesus. Now we're going to hit this season of scarcity. Remember, Lent is 40 days long, roughly. It depends based on the calendar, but it's at least 40 days. And that 40 days is based on Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. Moses, we just read in, in that passage from Exodus, spent 40 days on the mountain. The Israelites as a whole spent 40 years wandering the wilderness. Do you see the repetitive pattern here? The Bible likes to do that. But it's a long season of scarcity compared to the six weeks we just spent in this abundant period. So there's something, there's something important as we pivot from one to the other. So what I'm going to do today is go through the first five uh, verses of this scripture that Annalise read. I'd love to do all nine. There's plenty of stuff in all nine. Steve won't give me 45 minutes. Let's talk to him. Uh, but I want to go through those first five verses and talk about what's going in in those five verses. And then I want to connect it to the things that he's been talking about for the last month or so. So that's sort of the layout. But before we get to this passage, we have to understand the context a little bit. One of the things they drill into your head at seminary is read the book, read the book, read the book, read the book. Because if you pull out just any singular passage, which is kind of what the lectionary does, you can start to see things there that weren't necessarily intended in the flow of the entire text. Remember when the Gospels were written, when the New Testament epistles were written, they weren't written in chapters and verses. They were just one long text. We've broken them up. The problem is that that can create confusion as to what's being said. So I want to read for you a portion of Matthew 16, the preceding chapter towards the end. This is Matthew 16, 21 to 23. And it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the, con the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So that's what's going on immediately prior to the transfiguration. Remember, Jesus doesn't actually get arrested until chapter 26 of Matthew. So this is one of the first times that he's starting to tell his disciples, look, here's what's going to happen, and here's what has to happen in order for me to be the kind of Messiah that I came to be, which is very much in conflict with the kind of Messiah the disciples expected to see. Remember, they're expecting a Davidic war, warrior king, right? They're expecting somebody to come along who's going to overthrow the Romans, who's going to restore Israel to her glory at the lead of all nations. That's what they're expecting. So when Jesus starts talking about getting killed, that's where you have Peter jumping in and going, well, what are you talking about? No way, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen. So there's this confused state on the part of the disciples, and in that state we enter into the transfiguration text itself. So the first question we have to answer is, who sees the transfiguration? And that's right there in, in verse 1. Peter, James, and John. So why those three? The text doesn't say. We have no direct knowledge of why those three needed to go. We can surmise why Peter needed to be there, and I think we can extrapolate that to the other two guys. Peter needed to be there. Well, we just read what happened to him in chapter 16. Jesus just called him Satan. He's clearly confused about something. There's some sort of education Peter needs 
to rightly relate to God. And that's why he's coming along. And you can only, I think you can extrapolate to James and John. We don't know why it wasn't Philip or Nathaniel or Judas or any of the other apostles. But I think you can extrapolate that God looked at him and said, these three guys need to see this thing to get through the period of scarcity that is coming for them in their lives. I have plans for them in their ministry, and this is what I need them to see because this is going to carry them through that time. This is a time of abundant knowledge of Jesus. It doesn't get any more abundant than seeing Jesus transfigured in his full divinity and his full glory. It doesn't get any more abundant than that. There's a time of scarcity that's coming, and they're going to need that vision to get through that period of time. So that's who sees the transfiguration. What is it exactly that they're seeing? That's verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, we talk about Jesus in his transfigurated state. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. This is Jesus, again, in his full divinity, revealing himself to the apostles as, I am the Son of God. I am a member of the Trinity, and you can see that in this transfigured state. And then in verse 3, Moses and Elijah show up. Why Moses and Elijah? I mean, they're two major figures in the Hebrew Bible, but so is David. So is Solomon, so is Isaiah, so is Jeremiah. There's plenty that could have shown up. Why those two? Well, there's two factors. One, there's already stories and texts of each of those gentlemen being on a mountain and communicating with God. We just read the Moses passage from the Exodus. Elijah heard the voice of God on the mountain as well. But if you go deeper than that, there's themes that each of those men represent that we see over and over and over again in the Bible. Moses, of course, is connected to the Exodus. God hears the cries of his people. God walks through pain and suffering with his people. And God leads his people out of that pain and suffering. That's the, th that's the theme of Exodus. That's a theme we see over and over and over again in the Bible. And it's represented in Moses. Elijah, one of the things that Elijah preached often was righteousness, which simply means being rightly related to God. It's not about being better than anybody else. It's about making sure that your relationship with God is where it is supposed to be to the degree that you can do that from your end. So you have God rescuing his people and you have God wanting to be rightly related to his people in Moses and Elijah and here they are together and all of that comes together in the vision of the transfigured Jesus Christ. That's the image that they're seeing. That this story that they're so familiar with, Steve talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said that I came not to abolish the law. When you hear law in the Old Testament, it just means Torah, the first five books of the Bible. I didn't come to abolish the Torah. I came to fulfill it. And this is that being played out in a vision sense, right? Moses and Elijah coming together in the form of the transfigured Christ. That's what these guys see. That's what they need to see to get through this period of scarcity that's coming for them. Remember, you know, just as we know what's coming in their story, God knows what's coming in their story. God knows that there's a period of scarcity coming for the apostles. God knows that the crucifixion is going to shake the faith of the apostles to its core. And everybody's a little bit differently wired. So not, everybody would, not for everybody would this vision be enough. But that's why these three guys are seeing it. This vision is going to be what carries them through that period of scarcity. That vision of the transfigured Christ, of the of the vision of God rescuing her people and the vision of God being righteously related to her people coming together in Jesus Christ is what these people need to see to get through that period of scarcity. So what do they do about it? That becomes verses 4 and 5. 
In verse 4, Peter is going to be all Peter. Peter's a fascinating character. Peter's one of these guys that when he, when he gets confused or a bit overwhelmed, just feels a need to act. He rarely does the right thing, but he's going to do something. Right? We just heard in, in chapter 16 when Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem and die, and Peter leaps up, no way, I'm not going to let that happen. Let me get my sword, I'll protect you. Nope, not the right thing, Peter. Now he's standing on the side of a mountain and he sees this glorious vision and what is his reaction? I'm going to build three shelters. The word shelter there, by the way, is the Greek word sekne, which is the same word that they use for tabernacle, the tent that the holy of, would contain the Holy of Holies and where uh, Moses communed with God. On the side of a mountain, with no materials, with no tools, Peter is now going to build three temples. He's not thinking this through very clearly, obviously. But he's going to act because that's just what he does. But in the middle of saying, I'm going to do that, Lord, I'm going to build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Here comes the voice of God in verse 5. We have God saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. In this moment, God understands that Peter is trying to take this glorious vision and reduce it down to some sort of earthly terms that he can get his head around. And God's asking him to not do that to let go of that need and just let this glorious vision be what it is, which is the coming together of these themes that we see repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. God is with her people through pain and suffering. God wants to be rightly related to her people, and all of that comes together in the transfigured Christ. Peter, grab a hold of that. That's what you're going to need to get through the scarcity that's coming. And that is what Peter needed to get through the scarcity that's coming. And we know that because Peter wrote about it. Peter wrote two letters to the church in Asia Minor, churches in Asia Minor, that made it into Scripture. And in the second of those two letters, written towards the end of his life, he talks about this scene. Interestingly, he leaves out the offer to build the tents. Doesn't mention that part. Not sure why. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 19, it says this. Peter says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Quoted directly out of the Transfiguration story. He continues, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He's not just telling them that this happened. I was there. I saw it. We also have the prophetic message of something completely reliable, and you will do well to, uh, to pay attention to it. Now, if you hear me say nothing else today, listen to this next part, because this is the whole thing. You would do well to pay attention to it, he says, as, a, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. A light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter's saying, this is what I held on to when it got dark. This vision of Christ transfigured in front of me. All of the stories of the Old Testament coming together in this one human and divine being. When it got dark, I held on to this, and that's what I, that saved me until a new day dawned and the morning star rose again in my heart. And this is what I want to suggest is the culmination of everything that we've been talking about for the last five or six weeks. Steve's talked about disruption and invitation and education and integration. 
kind of centered around this idea of a deconstruction of your faith, a deconstruction and a reconstruction process of your faith. And what I want to suggest is that when you get to the end of that disruption, when you get to the end of that deconstruction, the thing you need to hold on to, the thing that you need to be left with is the loving, grace-filled, compassionate version of God that we see displayed in Jesus Christ on the cross. We talk about a center-set theology here at Genesis. Again, if you haven't been to an essentials class, you're going to hear plenty about it. But that there needs to be these things that are in the center of that target, in the center of that well, that are universal, that we all hang on to. And all the other dogma and doctrine and opinions are things that reasonable Christians can disagree on. But that center set is that center set. And what I'm suggesting is that at the heart of that center set is the transfigured Christ. Is Jesus bringing together all of the stories of the Old Testament into one divine and human being and experience. And that's what we hold on to as you go through the deconstruction process. That's what you hold on to as you go through the wilderness. Remember, we talk about wilderness all the time here as this place of letting go of something that doesn't work for you anymore and moving into something new that's totally unfamiliar. And you're not really sure what it is, and you're not really sure where you're going, and that's very, very scary. So scary that you're tempted to go back and grab the thing that doesn't work, because at least it's familiar. But you know you can't do that. You know you have to move forward. And what's moving forward with you is the knowledge that God goes with you, that the transfigured Christ is with you. When you're in that wilderness, it can be very, very difficult to feel God's presence. Even though we know from story after story in the Bible, God speaks to people in the wilderness, it can still be very, very difficult to feel his presence. But if you have that faith, if you have that trust in God's fundamental character as displayed in Jesus Christ on the cross, as displayed in the transfigured Christ in this story, you get through those periods of scarcity in your life. I debated whether I was going to tell you this story or not, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um... Some of you know my story, many of you don't. I grew up in what I refer to as a nominally Catholic family. We went to church every Sunday. I didn't really care. It was just something that made me late for the start of football. It was really my only thought about church. And when I got to my early teens, I decided to bail. I didn't really feel like I was getting anything out of it. When I would go to Sunday school classes, I was told not to ask so many questions. It was very frustrating for an Enneagram 5, by the way. But I was told that faith meant to just believe without having any questions. And I couldn't, couldn't do that. So I didn't really deconstruct my, my faith so much as I built a pile of wood, dumped a can of gas on it, lit a match, and walked away. I burned the sucker to the ground. I wanted nothing to do with it. I don't know if I got, ever got as far as being a full-on atheist, but I was agnostic with a capital A. For about 25 years. Didn't want any part of it. Just didn't care didn't matter to me. If I couldn't know God in the way that I could know everything else around me, then I didn't really care to know God. And I didn't really care whether God wanted to know me. Unbeknownst to me at the time, was that a period of wilderness? Absolutely. But I didn't feel a lack because I didn't really have anything that I needed to deconstruct. Or I didn't have anything that I felt like I was missing. Until I got to about my mid-30s. And then I started seeing people who had this thing in their lives that I didn't have. And it seemed to mean a lot to them. And it seemed to fill a hole that I was starting to feel in my life. But I thought, well, I can't be a Christian, obviously. I just, it's not, 
that's not me. I know what Christianity is, right? I was a Catholic growing up. I've seen evangelicals on the cable news. I know what Christianity is. I'm not that. I have a set of values that I've built up over the last couple of decades. They don't fit that. But what I found once I started to hear God's invitation and started to educate myself was this view of a loving, grace-filled, compassionate, saving Jesus Christ on the cross in the transfiguration story, and it changed my life. But not easily, because I fought it in Enneagram 5. I fought it because I thought, as I saw this in front of me, that, okay, yeah, that's true, but there's still these fundamentalist people that I'm not real big fans of, and there's still the Catholicism thing, and all that's part of it. And if I can't get my arms around all of it, then I can't be part of any of it. That was how my thinking went. Until I heard a sermon about Acts 16. And many of you have seen or know, but I have tattooed on my right arm Acts 16.31 because it is the verse that allowed me to become a Christian. So I'll give you... How much time I got? Oh, I got time. I'll give you the basic story of Acts 16. Paul and Silas are in Philippi and they are in jail. They are not just in jail. They are in the deepest, dankest, dirtiest cell in this jail. This is the worst spot in all of Philippi and they're in it. And there's a guard posted right outside their door. And that guard has instructions that if these guys get out, that guard's life is forfeit. So he's paying attention. And what does he hear? He hears Paul and Silas singing hymns and singing praises to God. They are in literally hell on earth and they're singing praises to God. The guard's completely befuddled, completely confused. How can they be doing this? And it's in that state of confusion that an earthquake hits Philippi and the doors of the prison are thrown open and prisoners start fleeing for the hills. And this guard thinks, well, that's it. These guys are going to escape. My boss is going to blame me. My life is forfeit. I probably just should just get it over with and kill myself. And he's about to kill himself when Paul and Silas say, you don't know, wait, don't do that, don't do that. We're still here. We're still here. You don't have to kill yourself. And this guard's blown away. These guys are in the worst spot they could possibly be in. They're singing praises to their God. When the chance comes to escape, they don't take it because they value his life more than their freedom, and they don't even know who he is. They're, he's completely knocked out. He says, whatever they've got, I don't know what it is, but whatever they got, I want me some. And in Acts 16.30, it asks what I heard one preacher call the most important question in all Christianity. Acts 16.30 has this jailer asking Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? How do I get what you've got? Which was exactly the question that I had at that point in my life. How do I get there? Because I don't think I can get my arms around all of it at once. And what Paul didn't say in answer is, well, you've got to have the right opinion about the atonement. You have to have the right opinion about uh, baptism, about this creed, about this prayer. You have to, you know, he didn't say any of that. What he says simply is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your family will be saved. Period. Paragraph. That's it. All that other stuff that exists outside of that center set, outside of that well, important. It's all important stuff. But the, the most important thing is Christ. And you hold on to Christ, and with Christ together, you will walk through the rest of that stuff. And I was just as blown away in that moment as the jailer was. 
Well, I can do that. I don't have to try and figure all of this out at once. You're kidding me, right? I can just hold on to the, the image of the transfigured Christ, the image of Jesus on the cross, the loving, compassionate, grace-filled vision of God. I can hold on to that, and I can walk through the rest of this stuff holding on to that and know that it's going to be okay. Sign me up. And it was literally in that moment, I'm not kidding you, it was in that moment that I became a Christian. And that, to me, is the lesson of Transfiguration Sunday. In Christ, we have the coming together of God rescuing her people and God wanting to be rightly related to her people. In Christ, that all fuses together in Jesus. Whatever it is you are going through, there are people in this room right now, I know for a fact, whose lives have gone completely sideways in the last six months to a year. And I am willing to bet a large sum of money we're recreational gaming legal in Minnesota that there are people in this room right now who I don't know whose lives have gone completely sideways in the last six months to a year. People, wilderness comes for all of us. Scarcity is going to come for all of us in some form or another. And what I want to say to you is if you are in it right now, you are not alone. You have members of your community that are willing to step up to your side and walk with you. And if nothing else, you have the most important thing you could possibly have, which is Jesus Christ, transfigured, walking alongside you, saying this is going to be okay. We may not know what's coming. We may not know where we're going. We may be tempted to go back to that thing that's familiar. No. There's a place that you're headed. There's a place that you're going. And the transfigured Christ goes through that with you and brings you out of that. That's the lesson of Transfiguration Sunday. As we are in this time of abundance in Epiphany, we are learning about Christ, we are learning about Jesus, and all of that comes together in that one transfiguration moment on that mountain. So that when we head into a time of scarcity, as we head into Lent, we have what we need to hang on to so that we survive that time of scarcity when it can feel so very, very hard to feel God moving in your life. Amen? Amen. Endings are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscove.org.